Hi, everybody. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Greet those of you who are here and those of you joining us, uh, whether you're in Traditions or Gospel Fusion, downtown or Fitchburg, or those of you watching online or listening to our podcast. Uh, to the Chinese speakers, to the Spanish speakers, es un gusto tenerlos aquí con nosotros. And to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so glad you're with us this morning. Now, we are in our sermon series uh, called To the Ends of the Earth, and we're reading the book of Acts. And in this part two of the series, we are been, we've been focusing on stories where people, well, they bear witness to Jesus. And we think that these stories have something to say about how we bear witness to Jesus. So remember um, week one of this part two, <laughs> week one of part two, Pastor Matt, he was telling us how to focus, pay attention to opportunities. And then we talked about storytelling. Right? Know your own stories. Know how to tell your own stories. And then last week, Pastor Matt showed us how to use John 3.16, that simple but well-known verse, to communicate the gospel to your friends and to your family. Well, today we're going to continue that by talking about a story about bearing witness, except today's a little different. Today we're going to be looking at a story where people, they don't so much as use words as use their actions especially how they make decisions. Today, we're going to look at the fascinating story of the founding of the church in a city called Philippi. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Now, verse 6 of this chapter begins a brand new section in the book. And this is a kind of an important section. This is a section in which the gospel, the message of the kingdom of God, comes to the continent of Europe. Verse 6. So Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Musia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Musia and went down to Troas. Okay, kind of a theology nerd's like, you know, excitement over on that verse. So uh, let me clarify, here, clarify this. This is the map of the area. This is present-day Turkey. This is Greece, and that's Italy. But all of that used to be part of the Roman Empire. And so these names here are the provinces of the Roman Empire. So what that verse is saying is this. Paul and Silas have been working in this area of Phrygia and Galatia. And now they're thinking about moving forward. And the Holy Spirit is saying, don't preach in Asia. Don't preach in Bithynia. And they're like, well, where do we go? Do we go back home to Antioch? We don't want to do that just yet. So they kind of move their way forward. Oh, don't go to Musea either. And they move their way forward, and they end up in Troas. Okay, end up in Troas. Well, verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Mas of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay. So Paul's in Troas. Macedonia is over here. Here's the city of Philippi. Okay? So, so this section, this new section in the book of Acts begins with a vision from God. Okay? Go to Macedonia. Now, for those of you who know your geography, you know that this is the border between the continent of Asia and the continent of Europe. Okay? This is now the kingdom of God heading into Europe. This is a big moment. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrake, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there for several days. So Luke tells us that, that, that this city of Philippi, he says two things. One, 
It's kind of a big deal, city. And second, it is a Roman colony. Now, a Roman colony legally means that it is an extension of the city of Rome itself, which means the people living in Philippi, they are, they are very patriotic, very loyal to the Roman emperor. They are very proud of their Roman heritage, their Roman religion, and Roman practices. In other words, Luke, by throwing this in here, he's giving you a foreshadowing that Paul, you know, preaching a gospel from Jerusalem, he is going to run into problems. And so the first problem that he runs into is he can't find a synagogue. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you know that's Paul's playbook, right? He goes to a new city, he goes there, he looks for a synagogue, and he starts preaching, preaching Jesus. Well, he can't find a synagogue in Philippi because there isn't one. You need 10 Jewish men in a city to form a synagogue, and they can't do that in Philippi. And so, so instead, what they have is something called a place of prayer. And, and so Paul goes to that place of prayer. It's outside the city gates, next to the river, and he's speaking to a bunch of women. And one of those women, her name is Lydia. She's a businesswoman, originally from Asia, but now living in Philippi, and she's relatively well off. She's a head of a household. Well, Lydia and her household both become Christ followers. And Lydia then invites Paul and his friends into his household and becomes their host. Now that's a, that's a good development. And then things start to go sideways. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Okay, let me just stop there. Because uh, this story is obviously about demon possession and exorcism. And for us, 21st century Americans, that's a little weird, right? I mean, demon possession, exorcism, that's, that's the stuff of horror movies. It's not the stuff of real life. So we need to know this, that the Bible does not see it that way. The Bible assumes a, a world of spiritual beings. God is a spiritual being. He is a creator God of the universe. He created everything and every, everybody. He created human beings, yes, but he also created other spiritual beings. And these spiritual beings, like humans, have moral agency. That is to say, they can choose to do right and do wrong. Now, like humans, some of them are aligned with God, and some of them are opposed to God. So the Bible assumes this conflict, this warfare in the spiritual realm. Okay? If you know the spirit of, stories of Jesus, you know that he spent quite a bit of time casting out demons. Yeah, right? So, so he, he does something called, it's just called exorcism, right? And, and, and the idea is that it is possible in some, some circumstances for an evil spirit being to take control of a human. And when Jesus drives out these spiritual beings, it signifies the triumph of the kingdom of God over these evil spiritual beings. So this is the big part of the story of the Bible. And, um, and I know it's weird. 
and I'm sorry I can't get into, get into more than that, but if you're interested in diving deeper, including learning about some reasons why we 21st century Madisonians might want to believe in the reality of these beings, I ask you to check out our sermon resource page. Uh, go there, and then if you scroll up, you'll find the section on spiritual warfare. We have an entire sermon series on, called Invisible Realm, and we also have a, a sermon on Jesus as the exorcist, yes. And then we have a book that we recommend by Mike Heiser, highly recommended, well done, Re really good book. Okay. So if you want to go deeper, we have good resources for you. But we need to know this because Luke assumes you know all this in writing this passage, okay? So here's what's going on. Um, we have this woman this female slave who's following them around, who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And this entire phrase, a spirit by which she predicted the future, translates two Greek words, pneuma, puthon. Pneuma means spirit, and puthon, well, we get the English word python. Yes, There's a, this woman has a python spirit. And the NIV here is very helpful in translating this because most of us would not know that a python spirit is a spirit that takes over the body of a priestess and when it is active, the woman goes into a trance and starts speaking a different voice. And that voice starts talking about the future. And everybody wants to know their future. This is fortune telling in the first century and it is very profitable. People pay big money to know their future. And so the owner of this woman, this, this slave woman, they're making money hand, 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 hand over fist. They're just exploiting her. Okay. Well, verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God. Now you think, well, that's pretty good, right? That's kind of like a good PR. That's not too bad. Well, not so much. It turns out that this phrase, most high God, and this word saved can actually be used to talk about Greek and Roman gods. And people in Philippi would probably think about Zeus or somebody like that. In other words, what's happening is this evil spirit is intentionally confusing the, the creator god of the universe, Paul's god, with the gods of the Roman and Greek pantheon, which kind of makes sense. We're talking about spiritual warfare. Right? This evil spirit is intentionally trying to stop Paul from preaching the gospel here in Philippi. Now, verse 18 is really interesting because Luke, he gives us two fascinating details. And, and he's a really good storyteller. He gives us details, but he doesn't really explain it, and he expects us to use the whole story to figure it out. Here are the two details. One, she kept this up for many days. Paul doesn't drive out a demon for many days. And second, Paul does it because he's annoyed. Okay, now, I'm not really happy with this translation here. Because the Greek word here is diapaneomai, and it means to be deeply burdened or dis disturbed by somebody else's provocative action. So yeah, annoyed is a possible translation, but the problem with the English word annoyed is that it kind of conveys the idea that Paul's just acting out. He's just being crabby, okay? And I don't think that's what's going on. So here are the two questions I think Luke is asking us to answer as readers. Why does it take many days for Paul to, to make a decision to drive out the demon? And why does he feel burdened and disturbed by it? Now, Luke doesn't, doesn't say it here, 
But if you look at the whole story so far, we have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Paul waits many days because it's a difficult decision. And even when he does make that decision, he is disturbed. He is deeply burdened. And that leads to the obvious question, why is this a difficult decision? I mean, it should be a slam dunk, right? I mean, in the New Testament, casting out demons signals the triumph of the kingdom of God over the evil spirits of this earth. So Jesus was going around casting out demons left and right. And here you have a woman who is spiritually oppressed, freeing her. That's a good thing. Paul should know that, right? Yes. But here's the thing. Paul is also savvy. Paul understands the situation. Paul knows that if he drives out the demon, he is done in Philippi. If he drives out the demon, he will be kicked out of Philippi. This is, this, is, okay, this, is, this is a struggle for Paul. He's weighing kingdom values. You see, on the one hand, you have the call from God. Go to Macedonia. He says, yeah, I believe it. This is my call, my mission. Come to Philippi and plant churches. That's my job from God. I know that. And now God has provided a household from Lydia. Great, great start. I have these women. Fantastic start. But if I go ahead and drive out this demon, what's going to happen? I'm going to put everything that's going on in Philippi at risk. Because my reputation is going to be destroyed. What about the people connected with me? What about all the other cities in Macedonia? I might be prevented from working there. So on the one hand, there is the burden of the mission from God and the future of the church in Philippi, in Macedonia. And on the other side, there is a woman in need of being freed from spiritual oppression. The church at Philippi versus the need of a single woman. How do you make that decision? After mulling it over for many days, Paul makes his choice. He frees the woman, deeply burdened, deeply disturbed. He frees the woman. And now he's gonna pay the price. When their owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Remember, this is spiritual warfare. Paul drives out a demon and the empire strikes back. How? by invoking two powers okay, that control so much of human society, money and tribalism. Okay, what does money do? Money blinds people to what is obviously good and obviously evil. Right? The, the, the owners of this, of this female slave, they know her suffering, but they can't see it. Money blinds them, right? And, and her freedom, a work, a work, an act of God to free a daughter of God from suffering and oppression. And what do they see? It? They see it and they see it. We need to condemn this because money blinds people. And then tribalism kicks in, right? What do they say? They say, hey, these men, they're Jews. They're the outsiders. They're that ethnic minority in our empire that we don't really like that much. 
All right, and here's the kicker. They're trying to change us. They're going to change our way of life, our customs. And no, 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 we are Romans. We need to stop this. This is a powerful talk, powerful speech. It appeals to fear, right? Outsiders are coming in, and they're challenging and changing our way of life, our value, our customs. Romans, we unite together. We are not going to let this happen. This speech works. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, of course. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. This is exactly what Paul was worried about. Right? This, this exact thing. <laughs> he, he, he's like, I, I know what the right thing to do is, and I know I'm going to get clobbered for it when I do it. What we have also here is a clear contrast between the power of the kingdom of God that gives freedom to a woman from spiritual oppression and the powers of the secular governments of this world that reveals itself in state-sanctioned violence. Clear contrast. So now Paul's in prison. He chooses to free the woman, and he has put the future of the church in Philippi at risk. What now? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, there are two unexpected things going on in this verse. One is that they're praying and singing. Now, remember, they've just been beaten but with rods. Their, the skin on their back is ripped open, muscles damaged, ribs sore, bruised, possibly broken. Breathing is difficult. And yet they're singing and praying. Now, we know why, because we read the book of Acts. And the book of, book of Acts tells us that first century Christ followers, they consider enduring physical beating as an honor when they do it, when they suffer it, for the sake of the gospel. So Paul and Silas see this as an honor. So they respond by praying and singing hymns to God. And hurt ribs don't matter. The second thing that's unexpected is that the other prisoners are listening. Now, and I imagine, you know, you're in a prison and, and you have two prisoners singing in the middle of the night, okay, I think the other prisoners would be like, hey, be quiet, except using more colorful language. <laughs> you don't expect this. See, see, these are the details that Luke throws in. He just expects you to fill in the blanks. And I think the, uh, the most obvious way to fill in the blank is that Paul and Silas are different, right? Most people, when, they, when they come into the prison beaten and bruised and battered, barely able to walk, they are sullen, they are angry, they are crying, they're shaking, they're, they're begging for deliverance, they're, they're, ang they're, they're, they're upset. What you don't have are two people singing praises to God. The prisoner's like, huh, these people are different. They handle things differently. Let's be quiet and listen to them. And at this moment, 
Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Whoa, God shows up. Perfect timing. God shows up, blast the doors open, loosen the chains. Now, we know this is God. God's done this before. Chapter 12, the book of Acts, God actually rescued Peter from prison. He does, he's done this stuff before. So what should Paul be doing in this situation? Well, isn't it obvious? There's a literal open door, a door smashed open by God. It is time for Paul to walk right through it. Or is it? Verse 27. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Verse 27 tells us that the life of the jailer is now at stake. You see, the jailer is also savvy. He knows what's going to happen. The prisoners have escaped. He has failed in his duty. There's going to be torture and execution coming up in his near future. Might as well go ahead and do it and save everybody the trouble. So is it time for Paul to walk through that open door? Again, a wrenching decision. On the one hand, doors opened by God with freedom beckoning, and on the other hand, the life of a jailer, the jailer, somebody he doesn't know, somebody whose job it is to keep him in prison. Verse 28, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. Paul and Silas do not walk through that open door. In fact, Luke, I think, implies that they use their influence to make sure no prisoners leave the prison. Paul chooses the life of the jailer. Just like the situation with the female slave, Paul places the freedom and life of others above his own, above his own well-being, above his own freedom, even above his own calling. I don't think Paul expects what's happening, what happens next. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? We don't know about the jailers. We don't even know his name. We don't know the trajectory of his life that's brought him to this point. But here's one thing we know. He's never seen people like Paul and Silas before. We know that because of his reaction. He has never seen prisoners who handle beating and imprisonment with such joy and confidence. He has never seen prisoners who intentionally give up the chance for freedom for the sake of the life of their jailer. He's never seen this before. And so he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I don't think, I don't think he understands the question. I don't think this is a theologically informed question. No, this is a gut reaction of somebody who has seen something that has spoken to the deepest yearning of his heart, indeed the heart of everyone. We humans, we have this yearning that cries out, hey, there's gotta be more to life than this. More to a life that's in pursuit of self-interest, of money, of status, of a life of comfort and ease, or a life that is being governed by fear, or anger, or anxiety. We have this hunger 
that cries out, we are created for more than this measly existence. There is this God-shaped ache in our hearts that perks up and pays attention when we see somebody who lives differently, who is not captured by the piffling and paltry dreams of this corrupt human world. The jailer sees it, and he wants it. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas tell him, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the other, others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. Do you see what's going on? Do you see the whole story? God calls Paul, go to Macedonia, go to Philippi, plant a church. Paul goes there, runs into some problem synagogues. But then, no, here is Lydia and a whole household. Yes. And then Paul puts it all at risk because he, he cast out the demon from the slave, the kind of demon from the female slave. And now he's beaten, he's in prison. He makes another decision to not walk through that open door. And all of a sudden, There's another household in the church, the household of the jailer. Somebody who is a Roman citizen, probably not Jewish. Somebody who's working for the government. Somebody who has some status in the city. And now the household of the jailer and the household of Lydia, they are the foundation of this church. And the kingdom of God has broken through in Philippi. That's the story. The story of the founding of the church in a city called Philippi. What do we learn from this? Number one, we bear witness by how we live. Paul and Silas, I don't think, said very much to the jailer. No. They lived by how they handle their situation, especially by difficult decisions, how they make difficult decisions. Now, I'm not saying we don't bear witness by, by words. We do. We proclaim Jesus with words but also by how we live, especially by how we make big decisions. Number two, just because a door is open doesn't mean we walk through it. Okay? I mean, in, in, in the sound of music, right, Reverend Mother says to Maria, when God opens a door, we, we got closed to the door, somewhere he opens a window, right? And, and the idea behind that, sen that sentiment is that God guides us by circumstances, and the open door represents new opportunities that we're supposed to follow. Well, I say be careful about that. Be careful about open doors. In this situation, God opens a door, and Paul does not walk through it. And Paul bears witness to Jesus precisely by not walking through that door. Now you ask, whoa, 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 whoa. how does Paul know to not do that? How does Paul know? Here's what Paul knows. We make decisions based on the values of the kingdom of God. And the values of the kingdom take precedence over circumstances. Number three, we make decisions based on the values of the kingdom of God. 
In both situations, Paul makes decisions to his own detriment. One leads to his own beating and his imprisonment, and the other one means he stays in jail. Both times. And both times he do it for the sake of an other. Somebody he does not know. Somebody he, he, knows, he owes no debt of loyalty. I mean, I mean, they're not Christ followers. They're not, not, they're not even Jewish ethnicity. He has no connections with these people. So why does he do it? Kingdom values. We bear witness to Jesus when we value the interest of others over our own. I showed you this passage before, earlier in the, in the series. I'm going to show it to you again. This is a letter from Paul. He writes, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In humility, value others above yourselves. Foundational kingdom ethics, kingdom values. And I'm bringing up this passage because it's from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Yeah, the story goes on. You see, years later, Paul writes a letter to the church at Philippi. And can you imagine that scene with the church, when, the, when the church gathers and, and the letter is being read? And there sits Lydia's household, and there's the jailer's household, and everybody else, and they've all heard the story. They all heard about how Paul sacrificed his own freedom, his own well-being for the sake of the female slave and for the sake of the jailer. They know all that. They've seen all that, and they're hearing this passage. They're reading this through, and they're going, oh, yeah. Paul, we know exactly what you mean. We get it now. We totally get it. We bear witness to Jesus when we place the interests of others above our own. I'm going to close my time today by asking you to join me to read this passage. Not just you, but everybody watching, all the sites and venues. And if you're actually just watching this streaming on a computer, go right ahead. Okay, read it out loud. Do it with me. Okay? Let's read this together. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And all God's people said, Amen.